0: Thank you, Cindy, for that ministry in music. I love to hear people's testimonies regarding the circumstances that led them to place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Each person has a unique testimony, a way in which God has worked in their lives to bring them to faith, and that is quite an individual experience. However, All testimonies have elements in common to be sure. For example, all who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior have a recognition of a conviction of sin and the realization of the need of a Savior. This morning, in preparation for the taking of communion, an activity that we're going to do together that celebrates the relationship that we enjoy to each other, as well as the relationship that we enjoy to Jesus Christ, we're going to consider three activities that all of God's people are involved in. Three activities that you and I share together. Three activities that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are engaging in today. We look at these three activities from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. If you're not there in your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me as we look at this shared Christian experience of three activities. The first activity is a turning or conversion. A turning away from our former beliefs and a turning to and embracing the truths of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9, we read that the Thessalonians turned from idols to serve God. Notice verse 9: For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols. They turned to God from idols. The first note here is that the worship of the Thessalonians was not syncretistic, meaning they did not seek to blend or intermingle or intertwine their old religious beliefs with their new religious beliefs. They didn't just continue on with their idol worship and then embrace also the worship of Jesus Christ. They turned from idols. They left them behind. They turned their back to the idols, as they were, and they looked to God. They turned to God. One might wonder about the relevance of turning from idols today. I said here's an activity that is true of all Christians. Well, can we say that we have turned from idols to serving God. I believe, assuredly, that we can. There is still literal idol worship on some places of this planet. And you think quite quickly towards some of the more primitive religions, uh, some of the animistic religions uh, of uh, Africa, per se. But uh, beyond that, major religions, such as Buddhism, realize there's a Buddha, there is an idol, there is a visual representation of the God that they they worship. Even though idol worship is not practiced widely in America, in a literal sense, most people don't have trinkets that they bow down to in their home, or they don't have some figure that they carry around with them, nonetheless... Nonetheless, there are still things that we place our confidence in that are vain and useless. Listen to Acts chapter fourteen, fifteen. Paul, and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to serve a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them. The contrast in Acts chapter 14, 15, is turning from that which is vain, meaningless, useless, empty, to that which is helpful, beneficial, useful. A turning from idols to a living God. Now, there are certainly things that people have been trusting in before they accept Jesus Christ as Savior, that turn out to be rather useless or not as helpful as one might think. One of the characteristics of idols is that they are usually made of either gold or silver. And if they're more cheaply made, they're made of wood, but that's usually overlaid with gold or silver. That is not just to enhance its magnificence, but to speak of its perceived value and worth. And while we may not form gold and silver into a molten idol, I would submit to you that a lot of America is putting its confidence in gold and silver. In materials that are going to produce happiness and health and strength and their future. We live in a very uncertain economy today. And there are economists that are speaking about gold as a safe haven. A protection against the future. Not knowing what our economy is not going to be. Not knowing the stock market is going to be. Where can you put your money where it's safe? Where there's no risk. Where there's going to be a return for what you're doing. Where you can be reliant. What is safe? What can you trust in? Well, our society is saying it's gold. It's gold. That uh, you can place your your trust in gold. It'll be there. It It will not fade away. It will help you in the future. Well, the scripture says they turn from idols. But it's not merely a turning away from their idol worship or their beliefs. But it's also a turning to God. In First Thessalonians one nine, they turn to God from idols. There are people that want to turn over a new leaf. They want to change. Okay? They they are heading down a path and they say, That's not right for me. That's not good. It's not it's not helping me. Okay? Maybe it may be an addiction, uh, an eating addiction, or maybe it's drinking, or or maybe it's some other behavior that they're looking at and saying, well, this is pretty destructive. Maybe it's hurting my family. Maybe it's hurting my health. Maybe it's hurting my relationship. And so they say, I need to change. I need to turn over a new leaf. I, I need to make a new start. I, I need to change. This is a recognition that not only did there need to be a change in their lives. This was not just a realization that that which they were doing was harmful or, or addictive or... Not beneficial, but they turn to God. And that's what we need to do. We need to turn from that which we formerly relied upon in our relationship to the living and true God. Whether that be what we're relying on to get to heaven. Uh, We shouldn't rely upon our works. We shouldn't rely on our behaviors. We shouldn't uh, rely upon the things that we do. We are to rely upon the saving work of Jesus Christ. The fact that he died on the cross in our place. But it is a turning to God. A conscious volitional shift. From trusting in that which is unworthy. To trusting in the living and true God. For some people they have made themselves their idol. And we are trusting in ourselves to get to heaven. We're trusting in ourselves for our future well-being. We're trusting in ourselves for all the success and prosperity that we want in life. Well, they turned their back on idols. And they turned to God. So I would ask you quite simply this morning, what is it in your life that you have consciously turned from? What is it in your life that formally would have brought you great comfort, great security, great hope, or the expectation even of eternal life that you have now said, no, that's not right. That's not where the truth lies. What have you turned from in order to turn to God? What have you seen is diametrically opposed in your former belief system to what you now believe. You see, because we're going to run into contradictions left and right with our society and our culture, exhorting us to put faith and confidence in things that only God is able to do and only God is able to provide. And certainly, if you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've turned from trusting in your own goodness to trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. Can you point to, are you aware of things in your life that you have turned from in order to turn to God? The second activity is serving God, a God who is worthy to be served. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report about this, what kind of reception we had with you, how you turn to God from idols, and now this phrase, to serve a living and true God. To serve a living and true God. Let's begin by this description of God. Who is the God that we are referring to? He is a living God. He is a true God. What is a living God? Well, a living God is a God who has life, obviously. But a living God is a God who acts. This is Acts 14, 15. And saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He is a living God. And the personification of a living God is a God who acts. And in that acting, that which is referred to most often in Scripture is His creative work. It is the God who makes. The God who creates. And the God who created us. The God who has made us. That stands in stark contrast to an idol, which has not made us, but that we have made. Turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us. But unto thy name give glory because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth. That verse ought to be familiar to many of you. That was the verse that we used in our building program. That's the building verse that we've been using in our celebration of our hundredth anniversary. Verse 2 Why should the nation say, Where now is their God? See, he's not visible. They were not worshiping an idol. And so they're saying, well, well, where's your God? Here's my God. Sitting right here. I can see my God. Where's your God? I don't see him anywhere. Verse three, but our God is in the heavens. And then these words. He does whatever he pleases. That is the most distinguishing thought between the true and living God. And an idol. God does whatever He pleases. This is a verse that ought to be memorized. This is a verse that ought to be started. This is a verse you ought to put in the front of your Bible. This is absolutely foundational to who God is. My worship of God. Who is my God? My God is a God who does whatever He pleases. That's who God is. He's the one who does whatever He pleases. Doing whatever He pleases is the most basic difference between God and idol. Look at verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold. And then notice these next words. The work of man's hands. They are the work of man's hands. They have created this God. This idol. As opposed to the God who is in heaven. And who has created us? Notice the description of the idols, Psalm 115, 5 and following. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. So here's this raven image. Here's this idol that's been made, and it's formed, and it has eyes, and it has ears. It has a mouth. But it's dead. It can't do anything. It can't speak. It can't hear. It can't see. It's useless. It's meaningless. It has no value. Because it was made by the one who's placing trust in it. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's, you get to the book of Romans in the New Testament. Romans chapter 116, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. To everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who turned, who turned the worship of God into something that I created man. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God in an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and 4 footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in their lusts and their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be destroyed and dishonored among them. Now, here's the reason. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. the most distinguishing nature between the true God and an idol is that a God can do whatever He pleases. And the very basic distinction in worship between an idol and God is that you acknowledge God is able to do whatever He pleases. An idol is created for the individual. The idol serves the worshiper. We serve the creator. We present ourselves to serve Him. The very basic difference, when you talk about turning your back on your former religious beliefs, And you come to embrace God as Savior. When you cut through all of the red tape. When you get down to the very basic bottom of it all. Is that if it's not a worship of the true and living God. Then it is a self-centered, self-seeking worship. That's what idol worship is. It's coming to God in order for God to serve the idol worshiper. For the idol. Idol to do what that worshiper wants. To provide fertility. To provide rain. To provide substance. To provide health. To provide strength. To provide health. But that idol is made in order to do whatever the worshiper pleases. And they're trusting in that idol to do for them what they want. This is the hardest thing to turn our back on. To move from a religion in which a God is created to serve us. To move to a religion in which we believe that God created us to serve Him. That's what we're really turning our back on. And you can see then how easily the worship of God becomes syncretistic. And I said they turned. They they weren't syncretistic. They didn't add. And so in Christianity, it's, it's important that we don't add the worship of God to our former religious practice or we start ending up with a God who is a creator who's still serving us. A God who is a creator who is still all about us. It's still a man-centered religion. But Christianity is a uniquely God-centered religion who recognizes that He is the creator and we are not. He made us. We did not make Him. And we exist to serve Him. He doesn't exist to serve us. But that's about Worship 101. The difference between the worship of an idol and the worship of a living and true God. And you see, people still wrestle with trying to make God in their own image. Trying to make God into being what they want Him to be. Trying to make God into doing what they want Him to do. All of that is a part of idol worship. True worship Allows God to be God. Takes Him as He is and recognizes the most unique and fundamental aspect of our God is that He is in the heavens and He's able to do whatever He pleases. And that extends to me. And that extends to you. And God can do with you and me whatever He pleases. And we don't have to give Him that right. He has it. Try to rebel against it. It's not going to get you very far. He doesn't have to ask your permission. When you die, God isn't going to say, is it okay now if, if your life ends? It doesn't happen that way. God is sovereign. Worship welcomes that sovereignty. Worship rejoices in that sovereignty. Worship embraces that sovereignty. Worship says, God, I'm here to serve you. I acknowledge that is why I have been made. I acknowledge that is what I am to do. And so we have come to worship God. And as you have come to worship God this morning, when we get through all the red tape and down to the very bottom, we have worshipped God when today we leave and say, I'm going to do his will in my life. We have said God is God. We've acknowledged God is God. We have made him God. We have said He is the ruler. He's the just one, He's the holy one. He has made us. Thus to turn to the living God is to serve him. And that living God is expanded in our text. In First chapter 1, verse nine, it reads, "For they themselves report in what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait from his, for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. Verse 10. His Son died for us. His Son died for us. Verse 10. That we may live together with Him. He lives. He lives. He is described as the true God. Not only is the living God, he's the true God. Not in the sense of simply being real that's what's there in the idea of living but true in the aspect of being authentic true in the sense of reliable true in the sense of Romans 3 4 not at all let God be true and every man a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge it's to recognize that what God says is true his message is true His Word is true. That's why it's embraced. That's why it's received. That's why they accepted it. That's why they acted upon it. Because God's Word is true. Because our God speaks. He has eyes that see. He has ears that hear. That's why we pray. And He has a mouth that speaks. And He's given us the Word of God. And so we say, let God be true. And every man a liar. If mankind goes against what God's word says, may our affirmation be God is true. And anybody's going to die of this is a liar. Because we have a God, and He is in heaven, and He lives. He lives. And the stress in our text is that we are to serve that living and true God. President Kennedy has given us an adage that has outlived him. Of course, President Kennedy is dead and gone. But his words still ring out. He said... Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Those words fit well in the Christian theme. Ask not what your God can do for you, but ask what you can do for your God. How different that is from the worship of those around us. Thirdly, the third activity is to wait. First Thessalonians 1:10 and to await for his son from heaven. Jesus died on the cross. He died to pay for the punishment of your sin and mine. He died to be an example of what it means to live for God. He died with the expressed intention I was saying to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done. The very essence of worship. God, do whatever you please with me. And he died on the cross. But notice verse 10. When he raised from the dead. The living God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The living God really lives. The living God really does have eyes that see, and ears that hear, and a mouth that speaks. Jesus said if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Excuse me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the Father, the only begotten of, of the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians nine. for in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus sees. Jesus hears. And Jesus speaks. And Jesus lives. And we Await his return. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven in the presence of the apostles. Acts 1.9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on the cloud, the cloud received him out of their sight. So, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he met on numerous occasions with his apostles. And then came that great day in which Jesus just ascended in their presence into the heavens. And then we have these words. And the angels who were around about them said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. This is the Lord's return 101. Just as you saw him lifted up from this earth and ascend into the clouds and go into the heavens, one day he is coming down out of the heavens and through the clouds to this earth. And we're to wait. And they are to wait. But what does waiting look like? What do we do? Notice the words in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. You don't need to turn there. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Now, I can understand why they stand there looking into the sky. I mean, that'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? See somebody just ascend? Watch him go and he's out of sight. So Jesus is out of sight, he's in heaven. You might ask what I'm doing, but I'm waiting for his return. That's what they were doing. They're waiting. And the angel says, Why are you standing there looking into the heaven? See, because they had a job to do. They had a responsibility to perform. Jesus had said, All authority is given to me in heaven. Let's go into all the world and preach the gospel. They were to be busy. Waiting is not an inactiveness. Waiting is not sitting around. The word translated wait in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 means to await someone with patience and confident expectance. Waiting involves activity and endurance. Some of the Thessalonian believers quit their work and became idle busybodies, arguing that the Lord was coming soon. But if we really believe the Lord is coming, we will prove our faith by keeping busy and obeying His Word. How are Christians supposed to wait for Christ's return? By being busy when He comes, Matthew 24. 44 to 55. Paul warns the saints to be awake and, not, and alert and not to sleep and to be drunken like the people of the world. We're to be busy. We're to be busy. What do we do to wait? Waiting is not just sitting around and looking. May I submit to you that probably there aren't a lot of people that are just sitting today looking in the sky. Let me tell you an extended thought of what waiting is not. Waiting is not trying to figure out when he's coming back. That's just another form of gazing and looking in the sky. It's not just sitting around and saying, hmm, what's going to be today? what's going to be next week? What it's going to be 19?" Well, I guess won't be 19-something. We're in 2010, I tell you. You can see I'm on top of things. Okay. may not be 2011. I'm still thinking maybe the guy was right. It's 1984. No, no, no. He was wrong. Okay. So, so no. He didn't come in 1984. He's not coming in the 1940s. Is it 2014? 2016? 2018? Is it I don't know when he's coming. And stargazing isn't particularly helpful. Jesus said, Occupy till I come. It's about being busy. We have a living hope. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They awaited Christ's return. For they understood, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. They are waiting for that deliverance. They are waiting for that salvation to be, rejo- to be revealed. We are waiting for that wonderful time in which we are going to hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We are waiting, according to First Thessalonians 5.23, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Second Thessalonians 1.5, this is a plain ind- indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affection, affection those who afflicted you. Second Thessalonians 1.10, when he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day, to be marveled at among all, all who believe, for our testimony to you was believed. The idea is that when he comes, we're going to be delivered. We're going to have eternal life. We're going to be in His presence forever and ever. That's the thought of 1 Thessalonians over and over again. But what were they doing? They were waiting for His return. But how were they waiting? By spreading the Gospel. By remaining faithful to Him. By being obedient. In believing that He was really going to return, it affected the way they live now. You see, because they turned from idols, trusting in them, to trusting in God. And in turning to idols, in trusting in them and trusting in God, they turned their back on idol worship. And no longer believed and placed their confidence in God's that they had created to serve them. But now they were placing their confidence in the Creator God who made them to serve Him. And so they are waiting. So how do they wait? By trusting and serving Him till He comes. Believing He has eyes that see and ears that hear. And a mouth that speaks truth. And He will be in our presence. And He will save us. And He will do all that His Word says. Three basic elements of the Christian faith. Turning. Serving. Waiting. This is a communion service this morning. And... It fits with communion in this way. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What is it next? Till He comes. Till He comes. We have before us a right, if you will, that Jesus Christ Himself established of partaking of communion. And we are to take of communion until Christ returns. That's a part of serving. It's a part of waiting. It's a part of trusting. We're taking communion this morning to publicly declare we are trusting in the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, not in any God that we have made with our hands. Not in ourselves, not in any idol. We're trusting only in Jesus Christ. And as we partake of communion, we acknowledge that we're doing so because He's commanded. And it becomes representative of the fact that we're here to serve Him. And so we don't worship today in any way that we want. We don't engage in any practice that comes to the fancy of our mind. But we are doing what He tells us to do. Eat of this bread, drink of this cup until I come. So we are serving Him. And lastly, as we partake of this communion table together, we are proclaiming we're waiting for Him. We're anticipating His coming. His deliverance. A judgment that we will not experience or have to go through. But an eternal bliss and joy Because the living God raised His Son from the dead. And He lives. And He will return. So as we partake of communion this morning, we are turning to God anew and afresh. Putting behind anything else that we may have trusted in or served. We have a new attitude in our worshiping God. We're here not for what God can do for us, but what we can do for Him. We acknowledge that it is not we who have made Him, but He who has made us. And we wait for the joy of being in His presence and worship him, him forever and ever. If you know Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we ask you to join in with us and partake of communion. If you don't, we ask you to refrain, not because of any rule that we have, but what the Word of God has to say about partaking of the of, uh, Lord's table unworthily. But let me just say to you, if you don't know the Lord as your Savior today, you can simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's very simple. It's turning, serving, and waiting. It's an acknowledgement that apart from God, I, I have no hope of eternal life. I need Jesus Christ to forgive me my sins. I can't trust in anything else. Nothing else, including my own goodness. It's only Jesus Christ. I acknowledge that the very essence of my sinfulness is that I've wanted to live my own way and do my own thing. The very essence of my sinfulness is putting myself first. When I'm told that I must love God with all my heart and all my soul, and all my strength. My sin is not recognizing that I was created simply to serve Him. And acknowledging that the sin that I wrestle with, and the sin that you wrestle with, though we might talk about individual sins, whether it be lust or whatever they may be, they come down to very basically those times in which I want what I want rather than I want what God wants. And so we still struggle with that. But we've come to recognize, we've we've come to realize, we've come to believe that the right thing is to want what God wants. And the right thing is to serve Him, not Him to serve me. And as we do that, we wait, looking for Him. Not by staring in the sky, but by doing what He tells us to do until He comes. Brethren, if you would come forward at this time, we're going to serve communion.